Well, this morning we are uh, indeed starting a new sermon series, uh, and, and this will uh, this will take us through the summer. Uh, this series, the idea for this uh, came from an observation I had regarding uh, something that I kept finding myself saying in previous uh, sermons. I noticed that that oftentimes uh, in a sermon I'll be talking about a certain subject and inevitably I will I will say something along the lines of you know and we can see this all the way back in Genesis chapter one or or the first time this comes up is in uh, in the story of creation in Genesis and so uh, the reason that is is because the the first three chapters of Genesis are just so foundational for our understanding of the rest of the revelation of uh, uh, of God's revelation of himself and and our understanding of ourselves in scripture so uh, so that, that's why I've titled this sermon series foundations to to remove or or ignore the first three chapters of Genesis would have devastating effects on on our ability to understand the rest of the Bible from that point forward. So I thought it'd be beneficial, it'd be a beneficial exercise to, um, to study some of those topics that first come up in Genesis 1 through 3 and, and then trace their development through uh, the pages of the Bible. So, so just kind of a, a sneak peek of uh, some of the topics we'll be discussing in the coming, uh, coming weeks over the summer. Um, we're going to look at the concept of Sabbath, which, which first comes up in Genesis chapter 2. Uh, we're going to examine the theme of sanctuary, which, uh, which is maybe the best way to describe the Garden of Eden as we see it in Genesis chapter 2. Um, we're going to see the topics of uh, covenant, death, relationship, marriage, sin, unconditional love, sacrifice, that they all make their first appearance in the Bible within the first three, page, uh, first three chapters of Genesis. So in essence, what we're going to be doing each week is, is starting a journey together somewhere in those first three chapters. We'll pick up the theme or the topic and then we'll launch from there into what, uh, what, how the rest of Scripture develops that, uh, that theme. And so I'm excited to, to go through this series together. One of the things that I hope will happen is that it will, it, it will shine some fresh light on the creation story, which for many of us is a story that we've probably heard numerous times in our lives. Um, but no matter how many times we've read that story, I'm, I'm confident there's new depths to which we are able to go. And, and I hope that we'll, we'll see that as we go through this series. So, so as we get into our, our topic for today, I, I want to first set the historical context for the book of Genesis. Uh, it might be tempting to think that, well, okay, Genesis 1 through 3, it talks about the beginning of creation, so that's the context for, for the text. And, and that, that would seem like a logical assumption, but that's, a, that's an assumption that isn't totally correct. Yes, Genesis 1 through 3 is about the creation of the universe, but the context for the book of Genesis is not the point at which creation was taking place. 
The, the fact that Moses is traditionally attributed with authoring the first five books of the Old Testament really is clue number one, that Genesis 1 through 3 was written long after Genesis 1 through 3 took place. Does that make sense? So we're talking about the beginning of creation, but the context for telling that story in terms of the book of Genesis is later. So while we, while we read Genesis quite often with our own set of questions and our own assumptions, I think it's important that we initially place those to the side and, and seek to read the text according to the questions and assumptions of the audience at the time of Moses. I think that's going to really cause us to, to think in a, in a new way about some of these things. That the people at that time would have been the just freed from Egypt Jews. And, and it would have been soon after the Exodus, uh, soon after the first Passover, in those 40 years of wandering in the desert. It was a group of people that had been enslaved in Egypt for over 400 years. Over 400 years. It was a group of people who were probably searching for some kind of identity and value and purpose in light of all that God had just done in and through them. So when we read the creation account, when we read it, we're, we're usually asking questions about the age of the earth and the specific ways in which God created. And those are just probably not the questions that those original just freed Jews would have been asking. They were, they were former slaves wondering about their value. Uh, they, they, were, they were simple people wondering, why did God choose us? Why set us free? Uh, they were probably even still in shock about God's power on display during the Exodus event with the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea, the manna coming down from heaven every day. Uh, and maybe they even wondered if the stories that had been orally passed down to them through the, through the generations, those stories about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, and maybe even Adam, were true or not. They may have been wondering that. Genesis addresses those questions, those specific questions. And the specific topic that we'll look at today, the image of God or the imago Dei, gives direct answers to, to many of those questions. So, so I'd encourage you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Probably the easiest passage to find because it's page 1. You're not going to get much easier than that. Page 1 in your Bible. Now before we read the, the specific verses for today, uh, let's be reminded of what has taken place so far in the creation account. So the story opens with God. Chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God. Now the story opens at the beginning of the history of creation. The history of creation, not the beginning of God, the, the, there's no such thing there, but the beginning of creation history. So God is seen actively creating all that exists in creation. He speaks and, and light appears. He speaks and the waters are, are separated from the sky. He speaks and water and land separate. He speaks and plants appear on the earth. He speaks and sun and moon and stars appear. 
He speaks and fish appear, birds appear, land animals appear. But at that point, with the land animals, he's not done yet. He's not done creating yet. There's something else yet to be created. And so we get to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Look at that verse with me. Then God said, let us make, and we're going to stop right there. I know you know what comes next, but don't look ahead yet. Let us make. We've heard the story before. We know what God is creating, but even if we didn't, even if we didn't know what God is making next, there's, there's, a, there's a shift in the wording that ought to tell us that not only is God up to something, but he is about to create something very special. Because the wording up to that point, all through chapter 1, it's been, let there be light, let there be an expanse, let the waters be gathered, let the earth sprout, let there be lights, let the waters swarm, let the birds fly, let the earth bring forth living creatures. It's, it's God saying, let this happen, let this happen. And I, the picture I get in my mind is, is a, a mighty ruler decreeing from his throne, saying this is going to happen, and it does. And of course, he's the one making it happen. He's not just decreeing, he's also creating. But it's that picture that God speaks, and because of his authority, it happens. And then we get to verse 26, and the scene totally shifts. It's not God saying, let this happen. The picture that I have in my mind at this point is this mighty ruler who's on the throne, and he gets up off the throne, and he, and he kind of crouches down, and he says, let us make. Let, not let there be, let us make. There, there's a shift there. There's intimacy in that, right? Let us make what is coming next, even without knowing what God is making. Even without knowing that, we know it's something special, something different from the rest of creation. And he says, let us make man. Let us make man. Now, now please don't hear gender in that statement. This has nothing to do with men to the exclusion of, of women. Not at all. The best way to understand this scene is to think mankind, humankind. Let us make mankind. And, and I'm not trying to be politically correct here. I'm trying to be true to the text here. This is God creating mankind. So look at verse 26 with me. We'll read 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So what makes mankind special and distinct from the rest of creation is the fact that we are created in the image of God. Image of God. We possess the imago Dei. So, so let's unpack that because that is, there's, a, there's richness to that reality. The imago Dei upon mankind speaks to us first, I think, about our origin. So although we are 
distinct from the rest of creation, mankind is unquestionably still part of creation. God is still creating here. Although created in the image of God, mankind is not God himself. We are not God in our essence. Instead, we are created like God. We are possessing God's likeness within us. If you notice, every other living creature is created according to others in its kind. We see that stated here. So the creatures in the ocean are created according to its kind. The, the birds in the air according to its kind. The creeping things on earth according to its kind. The beasts of the earth according to its kind. The livestock according to its kind. But mankind is created according to God's kind. There's, there's something different there. So where does mankind come from? Our origin is God himself in a way that is distinct from all of the rest of creation. Mankind has, has not evolved from monkeys or apes or any other created thing. And if that were the case, we'd be created according to those kinds. We're not. The Bible makes clear we are created according to God's kind. So that's our origin. So for a people just freed from Egypt wondering, man, who are we? Where did we come from? There, there's, there's richness here. We are created in God's image. And in addition to our origin, there's, there's much that the Imago Dei reveals about mankind's identity our identity. Bible scholars have spent much time and energy trying to determine exactly what the image of God is in its essence. Um, one of the ways it can be addressed is by examining the characteristics of mankind, which are both like God and absolutely different from everything else in creation. So when the question is asked, what is the image of God? We can say, well, what makes us like God, but yet you can't see anywhere else in creation? For example, one of those things, because we are created in the image of God, we can relate to God in spirit. In spirit. In John 4, 24, Jesus states that God is spirit. And then we're told in the Bible that we have a spirit. Romans eight sixteen says that the Holy Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. We're spiritual beings. Job 32, 8 says that the spirit in man makes him understand Wisdom. So nothing else in all creation has a spirit. Only mankind created in the image of God possesses a spirit that can relate to God on a spiritual level. This is why you're never going to find an ant colony that contains a temple. I can say that with confidence. You're never going to find that. Why? You're never going to find a rabbit praying to God for itself or for any other rabbit. The rest of creation does not contain a spirit, cannot relate to God on that spiritual level. Because we possess the image of God, we can. It's something that nothing else in all creation can do. So that speaks to us about our identity. The Imago Dei also speaks to us uh, regarding language. Because of the image of God, we can utilize language. In John 1.1, we're told that, that in the beginning was the word. Uh, in Genesis 1-3, God spoke, and God continues to speak throughout the creation account. Spoken language is something unique to God. And 
us as a result of his image upon us. Again, animals can communicate to each other. They can do so in instinctual ways, but they never speak to one another through language. Uh, you know, I, I can tell you to, to go into my office and bring me the blue Bible that is on my desk. And, and even if you've never stepped foot in my office, you can still perform that task because you know, you understand the meaning of the words go, office, bring, blue, Bible, desk. You know what those words mean, so you can go carry out that task. No animal can do that. that that's the result of spoken language. So as the result of the image of God upon us, we can utilize language to relate to one another, but, but also to God in a way which is entirely unique in all of creation. Um, another thing with, with the image of God, we are moral beings. In, in Exodus 15.11, we're told that God is majestic in his holiness. Uh, in Revelation 4.8, you've got the picture of the four living creatures surrounding God's throne, and they proclaim, holy, holy, holy. They're speaking about God's character. But we also read in Leviticus 11.44 that we are called to be holy as God is holy. Now, yet again, no other creature can be given that command to be holy. You can teach animals, you can teach pets to fear punishment based on certain actions, but, but it's not because of any sense of morality within them, right? A animals do not fight for justice, for example. A, a beaver is never going to be placed on trial before a jury of its peers. There's no sense of morality within anything else in creation. The imago Dei within mankind, it allows us to think and to respond morally or immorally, as the case might be, in ways that are unique to us. And that's because the image of God is, in, is stamped upon us. And then finally, and, and there's others, I'm just listing a few this morning, but mankind has an awareness of eternity. We are aware of eternity. We are able to grasp not just future and past, but, but eternal things. Uh, Ecclesiastes 3.11 states that God has put eternity into our hearts. So we can think about eternity, we can reflect upon eternity, we can act based upon eternity, we can hope for eternity in ways which nothing else in creation can. And again, it's due to the image of God upon us. So we can see, uh, you know, going back to this original uh, group of just freed Jews, what a powerful description of identity for a group of former slaves who were probably treated as less than human by the Egyptians for over four centuries. What a powerful message of identity. And I think we can see how that would be a powerful message for you and me today as well. That description of our identity, the image of God within you and me is something that is sacred and special, and it speaks to our identity. It's such a privilege to be, to be carrying that image of God within the rest of creation. And the identity that we find as a result of the Imago Dei, it leads right into the value that we possess. The two are intricately connected. So the first thing we ought to mention is that, that this value is held by each and every person regardless of 
our differences. Genesis uh, 127 stated that it wasn't just mankind in general created in God's image. It, it was, but it's also male and female specifically created in God's image. One gender does not possess the Imago Dei any more or less than the other gender. Both possess it equally. And, and that principle, I would say, has to be extrapolated to other areas of difference as well. So, for example, race. Race does not matter when it comes to the Imago Dei. So we as Christians ought to be torchbearers proclaiming clearly that all races and ethnicities possess the Imago Dei and should be treated as such. And, and on that basis alone stands the principle that slavery and discrimination are inherently wrong, just based upon the image of God. Uh, age doesn't matter when it comes to the image of God. So this means that the youngest of the young, those not yet born, have the Imago Dei stamped upon them. And we may not even be able to see it yet with our physical eyes, but it's there. God has imprinted it upon them, and, and so they ought to be treated as such. The other side of that is that means that the oldest of the old have the Imago Dei stamped upon them. And so in a culture where where those requiring more care than they used to are often left behind or pushed aside, we have to say that they are just as much image bearers as, of God as anyone else and should be treated that way. Uh, it applies to physical health. Physical health does not matter when it comes to the image of God. It means that, that those struggling with terminal illness or permanent illness due to the effects of living in a fallen world that the, the Imago Dei upon them is in no less proportion than someone who's predominantly healthy. We have to view others according to that, and we've got to view ourselves according to that as well, because we're all going to get to that point where our own health is failing one day. And in those moments, the Imago Dei is not decreased within us in any way. It is just as strong as it would have always been. Um, ideology does not matter when it comes to the Imago Dei. You know, we're, we're in the midst of what our culture calls Pride Month. You see it everywhere. Uh, we can, and I believe we should, disagree with certain principles held in that area, but at the same time, we cannot forget that someone of differing ideology from me possesses the Imago Dei in no less proportion than me. And that can, that can be tough in the context in which we find ourselves but it's the absolute truth. The Imago Dei is no less diminished there. We're never going to come across a single person who does not possess the image of God. Now, the image of God has been marred within mankind. For sure, it's been marred, but that image still remains. So if you continue on through the Bible, you find in Genesis 9, uh, chapter 9, verse 6, after the fall that God commanded Noah that the one who shed the blood of man, the one who murdered, must have his own blood shed. And it's because, it's stated because, God made man in his own image. And that's after the fall. So the image of God is still there, even within fallen mankind. You can go to James 3, chapter 9, uh, sorry, chapter 3, verse 9, and we're told that uh, we should not curse people. And again, the reason given is because we are made in the likeness of God. Every single person on earth has an inherent worth attached to the Imago Dei. 
which they possess. And it's because of that that God views us as people worth redeeming. We are people worth redeeming. That image has been marred, but it's being renewed in God's people. And I don't think anyone states it more clearly than Paul does in his letters. You come across this again and again and again. Uh, He was someone who not only recognized the image of God within mankind, but, but he recognized the work that God was doing to restore that marred, tarnished image. Um, that, that, is, that is the result of sin. So in Ephesians 4.24, Paul tells the believers, he says, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Um, in Colossians 3, verse 10, where we were a couple weeks ago, Paul writes that the new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Uh, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says that we as believers are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. You can hear the process taking place there. God's people enslaved in Egypt probably had a cloudy perspective of the image of God upon them. And I don't think it would have been just because of their sinfulness. That, that definitely would have been part of it. But it was because of their slave identity, I think, as well. And so God began to redeem and, and to restore his image upon them by setting them free from their captors. And I think God ultimately redeems and restores his image upon men and women by setting us free from our captor, which would be sin. All of creation is going to participate in our freedom, but it is without question our freedom. The Bible makes that clear. Jesus died so that his image upon mankind might be fully restored. And that restoration is a progressive one. I wish it would happen instantaneously once we profess faith in Christ, but there's a process there. That image is restored and renewed more and more and more within us. And we're in the midst of that process right now as believers. But upon the return of Christ, upon our, our final glorification, in eternity, that that restoration will be completed for all of eternity. That image of God will be will be fully redeemed and restored within us. It's never been lost. It's always been there, but it will be made whole and complete once again. So, so the Imago Dei, it, it, it speaks powerfully to our origin, our identity, our value, our redemption. And, and the last thing we'll look at this morning is our purpose as well. It speaks about our purpose. Um, look with me at verse 28 of Genesis chapter 1. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. So in that verse, there's a twofold purpose given there for God's image bearers. The first purpose is in terms of creativity. Creativity. God, God is, he's first and foremost presented in the Bible as creator. The very first description we're given of God, chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created. That's the first thing we learn about him, that he's a creator. So it's only logical and natural that those made in God's image would be creators as well. 
And this is seen in part through mankind's multiplying, filling the earth with other people. In fact, uh, turn with me to Genesis chapter five. And you can see this connection being uh, explicitly made in Genesis chapter five, uh, starting in verse one. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created, created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. That's, we've been talking about that. But look at verse three. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So the wording there, the wording used to describe Adam fathering his own son in his own likeness and image, it's no coincidence that that wording is the same that's used about God's creating mankind in his likeness and in his image. Mankind displays the image of God upon us by creating others in our image. But that, that image of God, the Imago Dei being seen in creativity, it, it's not limited to childbearing. That is one of the obvious places we see it, but there's so, so many other places as well. That image of God is seen through the creativity of music, of art, of architecture, uh, problem solving, skits, writing books, cooking meals, uh, even for me personally, crafting a sermon this week. I mean, there's creativity in that. Uh, humans are the most creative creatures on the planet, and it's because we have the image of God. We have the image of our creator God stamped upon us. So one of our purposes on this earth is to put our creator God on display by being creative agents in one way or another. And so I think one of the challenges for us is to be doing that, to be living out that creativity, but also recognizing it in others. We ought to be marveling in and, and encouraging creativity that we see in one another. So, you know, I think about my own household and uh, Levi has got a binder full of drawings, you know, that he's drawn. And, and I ought to point out to him that that's God's image upon him. That's the creativity that God has given him coming out. Um, if you were to teach a Sunday school class, but, but do it a little differently than I would, you know, rather than saying, well, you ought to do it how I do it, I ought to recognize the creativity in you doing it differently than I would. That's the image of God stamped upon you. Uh, in the workplace, when a coworker solves a problem of some kind, uh, we ought to see that as the Imago Dei being lived out in their lives and, and treat them accordingly. Um, we were created to be creative. I think you could sum it up that way. We're created to be creative. And that purpose in our lives comes directly from our identity as image bearers of God. And the other purpose mentioned in this uh, passage in Genesis is that of dominion. So we're created to be creative and we are created to have dominion, ruling over creation, subduing it, helping it to thrive as, as God's image bearers placed over it. it uh, it's a purpose that, that would rightly deserve its own sermon. So we're gonna give it its own sermon. Next, next week, Pastor Tim is going to speak on just that topic of dominion. 
Um, but it's going to flow directly out of what we covered this morning. I mean, this is the foundation of that dominion. God's image being placed upon mankind. So, you know, as we close the sermon for today, I kind of want to zoom back out and and look at the big picture again. Uh, Like God's people who had been freed from slavery in Egypt, I think many of of our deeper questions that we ask today revolve around origin and identity and value and redemption and purpose. Look at our culture and tell me that those aren't the five questions or five of the main questions being asked. And it's impossible to find the answers to those questions if if we ignore or we reject the Imago Dei upon mankind. Mankind in general, but upon each and every individual as well. And so we have to be grounded in that truth so that we can teach it to our kids, so that we can teach it to our grandkids as they're asking those kinds of questions. We need to be grounded in that truth so that we can lead our neighbors and coworkers and and friends into that truth And, and for ourselves as well. We need to be grounded in that truth so that we can rightly understand ourselves and what God has called us to do and and how much God loves us as his image bearers. You and I are created in the likeness of God. I'm I'm looking out over a group of people who possess the image of God. You're staring at a face that possesses the image of God. What a blessing that is. What a blessing that is that nothing else in all of creation can claim. And what a declaration of God's love for us that is as well that he would make us in his image, according to his likeness. It's such an act of love right from the very beginning. Would you stand with me? Let's let's give praise to this creator God who who has made us like him. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for these words at the very beginning of your revelation to us. And I thank you for the foundation that it sets. I thank you that we can look to this very first chapter and come to understand so much about who we are, how you've created us and why you've created us and the value that that gives to us and what it means for our daily lives. And God, I pray that you would help us to be grounded in that truth. especially in a culture that is, uh, that is rightly asking those questions, may, may we stand firm upon the truth that's revealed in, uh, in your word, God, about who we are as individuals and about who we are as, a, as, a, as mankind. And God, I thank you that, uh, I thank you for the love that that proclaims. There's, there's just no question that you love us even just based solely on how you created us. It's, it's abundantly clear. We praise you for that. That's why we, that's why we gather here together. It's why we, uh, why we commit our lives to you. It's why we sing songs about you and to you. And so God, we thank you this morning. We give you praise. We worship you as our creator. And we ask that you would empower us and direct us 
to live in response to your image placed upon us. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.